0: uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Gary Fuquay. Uh, we're at the Nicholson Library. It's May 6th, 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gary. You're welcome. Uh, Let's we'll start by asking, why grapes? How did you get into wine grapes?
1: Well, when I was 20, I hitchhiked around Europe for four months uh, and was exposed to wines and that, that sort of got me interested. And then uh, over the years, uh, I was married in '61, and my wife and I went on our honeymoon to San Francisco and ran into people who were selling wine in Sausalito and Mm -hmm. got interested. And then uh, I didn't think much more about it for the next 10 years. And then when I was living in Seattle, working for the Army Corps of Engineers, I decided I wanted to try something in agriculture, and I thought. Wine grapes were probably more interesting than growing wheat or something like that. <laughs> sure. So I did research in 1970, went down to Roseburg, talked to Richard Summer, uh, looked for land, and thought probably not a good idea to go down there because I needed a job and <laughs> not many jobs for economists. I have a bachelor's and master's degree in economics, so. I did research I got a copy of Winkler's book Mm -hmm. Wagner's book Uh, I I found a copy of Charles Curry's master's thesis Mm -hmm. and I used that as a basis for talking to him because Chuck had a fairly very strong personality he didn't suffer fools so I read his thesis before I went and talked to him so anyway that's how I got started. And then I found out that there was they were growing grapes up in the Willamette Valley. I heard of, heard about Dave Lett and Dickie Rath, And I went to a meeting in February of 1971 uh, at Jim Marsh's house. And there were three or four, maybe five people, I don't remember all the people who were there, mm-hmm. were talking about growing wine grapes. And then uh, I think the next day, a couple of days after that, I ran into Bill Blosser in a, in a real estate office in Newburgh. But anyway, when I was at the meeting with uh, the group at Jim Marsh's house, Jim told me about this guy on Red Hills Road who wanted to sell some of his land. Mm-hmm. And so I, His name was Ken Carsley. And so I went and talked to him, and he sa- he agreed to sell me Thirty-five acres for twenty-seven thousand five hundred dollars. It had five acres of hazelnuts and and the rest blackberries. <laughs> so that's how I got started. And then uh, I ordered cuttings from Carl Wenty in he's uh, down in Livermore, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Planted them in my mother-in-law's backyard in St. Helens in the spring of 1971. And then uh, went on to plant them in the vineyard in 72, in the spring of 72. At the same time, I was building a house on the property. Sure. Sure. So I got Vadensville Vadenville clone. I got the Gamay Beaujolais clone of Pinot Noir, which is an upright clone. I don't think anybody uh, grows that anymore.
0: Not that I know of.
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: So you mentioned doing research. Uh, did mm-hmm. you have, when you started, when you got your clones and you started to, started to plant, did you have a pretty good idea what you're doing at that point? Or was no, you I still-
1: had no idea. <laughs> So what
0: were some of the trials and, trials and challenges you ran well, into? Well,
1: the first summer I went, had planted in 72, the grasshoppers were eating the leaves of the young vines.
0: And how did you deal with that?
1: Uh, not, I didn't do anything. <laughs> and they survived. And then the winter of 72 was very cold, and I was wondering whether they'd even survive, and they did. Because it got down to... Five degrees above zero.
0: <clears throat> Who did I mean, you reach out to when you were looking for help on with wine uh, grapes?
1: Everybody helped each other. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to Corey. I talked to Irath. I talked to Dave Aulet. Uh, th- those are the main guys. Uh, Dave Adelsheim came a little later. Sure. So uh, then the next spring, I bought. Uh, plants from Dick Erath and Chakuri. Bought the Kuri clone of Pinot Noir and I bought enough for three acres of Riesling. Mm-hmm. Planted three acres of Riesling in the spring of 73. So <clears throat> then planted a little more each year. And then in 1977, uh, Dick Erath and I went to France and Germany you know, to do re- some research mm-hmm. and Uh, we learned a lot. We had introductions from uh, Andrei Chelechev, famous California winemaker, and uh, he he gave us introductions at Dom Perignon and and Geisenheim (laughs) and in Burgundy. Wow. So one of the key things we we learned on that trip, Dick, of course, was interested primarily in winemaking because I wasn't in the wine business Per se, mm-hmm. I uh, so I was primarily interested in the vineyards, and they, they were using catch wires. In Germany, we'd not been exposed to that at all, that I know of, in the United States. I think we brought that back as a, a way to keep the vines growing upright. Oh, okay, interesting, interesting. So that was ni- May of 1977. And then in 78, I had. I decided I wanted to try the wine business, so I had uh, Sokol Vlosser make a barrel of Chardonnay from grapes off of my vineyard. I had a I had a one acre of Chardonnay, mm-hmm. the 108 clone, which is primarily a California clone, mm-hmm. and uh, ripens really late. So that was the my introduction to, to the wine business and but I decided I had a full-time job to do. I, I was working for, at the time, Bonneville Power Administration. So I did that for one year, and then I, I sold the, the, the wine back to them after I bought a barrel and I bought some wine-making equipment. Sure, and sure. I, I was making wine for fun along the way, but not commercially. So, and then during the 80s, uh, I hooked up with Argyle and they leased my vineyard for several years in the, in the mid to late 80s. Mm-hmm. They did all the farm work because I was doing it all initially in a full-time job and three kids and <laughs> too crazy sure. commuting to Portland and back was a little more than I could stand for the t- at the time, so I, I hooked up with the Argyle, sure. and uh, they ran the vineyard until 1990, when Phylloxera was discovered on my vineyard just behind my house, mm-hmm. it was the first one. I think I, I was the beneficiary of, <laughs> of the first Phylloxera discovery.
0: You <clears throat> patient zero there. Yeah. So what was the reaction when that happened?
1: Uh, dismay. <laughs> yeah. We knew it was going to happen. We didn't know when. Mm-hmm. You plan on own roots without rootstock, you're going to you're going to suffer the consequences. If you, I don't, I have no idea where the phloxer came from, but you know, people come up from California, and if they had mud on their boots. And, Walked in the vineyard, it starts. So that's when I sold part of the vineyard to Gary Andrus, Archery Summit, Mm -hmm. which is now their Red Hills estate. Mm -hmm. So in 1990, I sold, or 93, actually, 1993, I sold 25 acres to them, and Alan Holstein had 10 which he got through my divorce. That's another issue with the wine business and grape growing. Mm -hmm. Relationships are stressed. Anyway, uh, and my dad bought 10 acres in 75 right next to me, so I had, so we planted his. So when when I sold the 25 to Andrus and the 10 to Alan Holstein, I still had 10 left and we started planting uh, the the 10 acres and that's where we ended up. Uh, I made wine with friends starting in 1997, a group of friends got together. We call ourselves Fermenting Friends. (laughs) We made wine up until 2015. And uh, won lots of amateur awards. So, and then I saw <clears throat> discovered flocks are on the, the last 10 acres I had. Ugh. So I started replanting that, although I, I had planted on rootstock a part of it. I planted uh, Pinot Noir 115 clone. Mm-hmm. And then i then I planted three acres of uh, Pinot Blanc and three acres of Pinot gris. over the years i I had also on the original property, I' planted Pinot Gris.
0: How did you decide what you wanted to plant and when?
1: Oh uh, just talking to people mm-hmm. and whoever who's going to buy my grapes? You talked to whoever is going to sure. and the the last ten years, I sold the Erath and he ran my vineyard. So. so you mentioned,
0: uh, like you said, kind of uh, starting out with uh, some, some reading and some kind of talking <clears throat> right. to people. You also took classes at UC Davis. Is that?
1: I've per- taken classes at Davis, yeah. So tell
0: me about that kind of process and how that benefited oh. your your, well, your process.
1: I, I took both winemaking and uh, vineyard classes, but mm-hmm. primarily winemaking. Davis f- focuses on California, so most of the vineyard. Uh, curriculum that they teach is primarily associated with California. Sure. And of course, d- during the early years, Oregon State started to have a program. Uh, Dr. Wang, I mm-hmm. think, was his name, at at University or uh, at Oregon State mm-hmm. University. Uh, so, and Barney Watson mm-hmm. uh, at Chemeketa and. So they started to end up with, started with programs at the universities that focus more on growing grapes in the Northwest or or Willamette Valley in any case. Sure, sure. So, yeah, you know, the Davis courses I took were primarily winemaking.
0: So at one point you kind of had a thought you might go into winemaking. <clears> yeah, <more>. again,
1: but <laughs> we, we made wine up, up until 2015. Sure, sure.
0: Uh, so, what was your? How would you describe your grape, grape growing philosophy and, and how it sort of developed over the years? What were you hoping your grapes would be when you when they were done?
1: Well, I was interested in the farming aspect of it mm-hmm. primarily, and and from an economic standpoint, growing grapes that I could sell. Only at one, there was only one year, 1984, that I had. Uh, was a very cold year. And that's the only time I grew grapes that I didn't get paid for. (laughs) It's not
0: a bad record overall. (laughs) No,
1: over almost 40 years. Sure. So, no, I was growing grapes primarily from an economic standpoint, as well as making grapes good enough to make good wine. Mm -hmm. You know, growers don't get the uh, notoriety that winemakers do. Sure you've 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 heard of all the winemakers sure. and you probably don't know a lot of the great growers you may have uh, some of the i don't know who's contributed who are just growers sure harder to, harder to track down yeah, sometimes it is yeah. so so I sold the last of my vineyard in two thousand ten to a guy named. David Wickman. Mm -hmm. He's a he was at the time uh, executive VP at United Health in Minneapolis. I've never met the guy.
0: Just bought your grapes. We
1: bought the vineyard. Bought Mm -hmm. the house. I built another house. I built a house on the last ten acres in 2002. My vineyard. It was my uh, Italian villa. I, I I tried to make it like a italian stucco oh. slate house or sure. s- uh red red roof house
0: <laughs> sounds mm. pretty amazing yeah
1: it was <laughs> it's still there <clears throat> but i drive up there every once in a while i look at it sure sure so
0: you mentioned uh the kind of difference between winemakers and grape growers in terms of notoriety yeah. uh how did you develop those relationships for who was going to buy your grapes and and kind of make them a long-lasting, profitable relationship? You
1: know, in the beginning, Oregon winemakers are like one big family. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really are. You could go to anybody and ask them any question. And we had organizations. We had meetings at the Tigard Firehouse. You've probably heard about that. (laughs) And uh, I, I did vineyard economics and made presentations at... And ag shows, mm-hmm. so um, there's a camaraderie that comes with the business. I don't know about it now, but with 700 wineries in Oregon, sure. So, anyway.
0: So you mentioned that you were doing pretty much all of the work in the. I vineyard. was doing
1: all the work for the first seven or eight years. So what was that like? What was
0: it? To, how did you manage your time and effort?
1: Uh, how, how did you do it all? I worked a lot of weekends. <laughs> pruning was was the hard one. Of course, I wasn't doing all the harvesting. I had crews, but pruning out there in the cold and the rain and starting pruning in mid December and probably finishing up in March. Mm-hmm. The first years, it's a lot of work. And you know, we started out. Uh, with low-cost options, we use bean steaks from the pole beans mm-hmm. that were no longer in existence in the in the valley, and so we buy buy pole beans from pole bean farmers, and soak them in creosote and put them in the ground. Cheap trellis system. I like it. Yeah, you know, I- improvising wherever you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Buying used equipment, um, sharing equipment, mm-hmm. a lot of that. Mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> you mentioned kind of that you got interested in. You wanted to grow something. You wanted to go back, kind of yeah. back to the earth, and you chose wine grapes. Yeah. Were you? Are you happy with that decision? Is that? Oh, absolutely. Even when you're not there pruning in January, you were still happy with yes, it? happy doing this.
1: I'm glad at all. I did it all. I, I grew up. My folks had a big garden. Mm-hmm. My dad grew up on a farm in the Midwest, so I had some exposure to agriculture. Mm-hmm. And thought that was something, because I had a, a desk job, I ha- had management management job at Bonneville Power Administration, and that's a desk job, mm-hmm. and having something to do outside, and I'm fairly adventuresome and entrepreneurial, so. I thought I needed to do something other than working in a in a management position in the electric utility. <laughs> sure, sure. Um,
0: mm-hmm. and so you talked about the camaraderie in the industry, uh, and obviously you've you've kept some of those relationships for a yes, long I time. Have. So tell us about some of the some of the tell us about the geezers club and, and some of the some of the folks mm-hmm. you still hang around with.
1: Well the geezers are a, a group of former and still growing great growers. Uh, Vivian Weber, Jim Marsh, Dick Erath, John Davidson, and Jim McDaniel. We meet once a month for lunch and tell, tell stories.
0: And you've been doing that for a, quite a while now. Yeah,
1: uh, all probably two or three years. Okay. okay. Uh, and I, I keep in touch with Erath. Sure. Yeah, in fact, there's a, an organization in Portland called the Good Old Boys. Mm-hmm. There are probably 45, 50 guys that get together once a month. Not all of them are in the wine business, but they're interested in wines. So I keep that. And, and then Fermenting Friends, my, my winemaker buddies, we, while we don't make wine anymore, we, we get together, oh, probably six, eight times a year mm-hmm. and do wine tastings. In fact, one of, our, one of our leaders is now in Europe traveling, so and when he comes back on summer solstice, we'll get together again. Ah, excellent. So, I, and I also have a wine storage unit at over at Willamette Wine Storage mm-hmm. in Northwest Portland. Mm-hmm. And we get, there's a group of people who get together every Wednesday night Drink wine, tell stories. So, my life re- re- revolves a lot around the wine business. Sure, sure.
0: Are there uh, f- <clears throat> favorite stories or favorite times you like to look back on? Are there certain vintages or certain eras you're you're happiest to think about or proud well, of? It,
1: it's great when you when the years like eighty three and eighty five. The prominence of Oregon Pinot Noir mm-hmm. was evident. That. That that rubs off on anybody who's in the business. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had a Erath '83 Pinot Noir, well, two months ago. Mm-hmm. It's still wonderful wine. Still good, and I'm sure you have collections here. We
0: don't get to taste them very often. Though, you don't? No, probably not. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'll take your word for it that it was good. Yeah.
1: No, it's 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 a, it's a. Something to be associated with mm-hmm. the, uh, I don't know whether you call it a fallout, but the association with the wine business mm-hmm. is positive for anybody personally, I would think. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Why is that? What is it about wine that I don't know, it's the
1: mystique. It? Mm-hmm. Although it's growing grapes is just farming. And it's all the, the good and the bad that comes with farming. But it's, uh, you, you know, people talk about terroir, uh, the, the place of the vine mm-hmm. is gonna determine the taste of the, gra- the grape mm-hmm. and in the wine. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery and, and it goes back thousands of years and it's, it's unlike almost any other kind of agriculture. Sure.
0: Do you have an idea for what the Fuquay terroir would be described as?
1: Red Hills, Jory, mm-hmm. soil, volcanic. Uh, I don't know how I describe the wines. People do describe them. Uh, they, they're distinctive, the Red Hills mm-hmm. Pinot Noirs are. <clears throat> it's interesting, of all the white grapes that we grow, I like Pinot Blanc the best. Really? Yeah.
0: Why is I, that? What about I, it?
1: I think it goes with food better than any. Although with the new Dijon clones of Chardonnay, uh, mm-hmm. we're, the reputation of Oregon Chardonnays has come way up from the time I had Chardonnay when, it, when I had the 108 clones mm-hmm. that fairly ripened <laughs> in a good year. Sure. Yeah. The other thing that's changed. is. Warming. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot more vintages are, I would call, really good as opposed to some of the years we had some t- pretty bad weather conditions mm-hmm. and it's just distinctively warmer than it used to be. I mean, just look at today, it's, it's early May and it's 80 and it's supposed to be 90 over the weekend. Yeah amazing yeah i always had an interest in weather Mm -hmm. and so that's the other research i did when i first came down here i looked at weather stations like cherry grove Mm -hmm. which has a a history of weather data uh mcminnville there weren't any and then i kept weather data on my vineyard i'd take uh, highs and lows and do degree days Mm -hmm. so uh, weather was always something of interest to me anyway, so that's sort of is associated with agriculture.
0: What do you think this warming means for mm, the future of means, wine?
1: It means you get AVAs like the, the new uh, Corridor, Van Duzer Corridor. Mm-hmm. Cooler weather. Mm-hmm. More higher elevation. No, No one thought about planting grapes when I was planting at a thousand feet elevation. You just didn't, you didn't even consider that because you'd never get it ripe. Nowadays, thousand feet is not, even Northern Willamette Valley is not out of the question.
0: Do you see, as you look into the future and look at the trend, do you see that continuing people going higher in elevation or do you see different varietals being planted? Well, I think the road?
1: people are going to do both, mm-hmm. different varietals. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are already planting Tempranillo up here, which is, is pretty unusual I would have thought, Tempranillo? You're kidding? That's Rioja <laughs> sure, in Spain. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you can plant North Slope now you sure. can, and, mm-hmm. and ripen Pinot Noir uh, I don't think anybody's planted cab. I had, I had two rows of cab on my place just for fun of it. In fact, I had a phenologic study that Oregon State gave me. Uh, there were, I think, five vines of about 15 different varieties. Oh my goodness. That, that's back in the 70s. They were trying to determine what would get ripe up here. Like, they even put in a, a Tanat which only ripens in places like Hungary.
0: <coughs> did your cab ever ripen? Did you ever get mm. cab
1: to ripen? Yeah, I did some years. I had it in a little bowl below my house. Okay. Yeah, if you, if you kept the crop low in the good years, you could get it ripened. I, I made some cab, it probably wasn't wonderful, but it was just enough for home use. Sure, sure.
0: So I want to talk about the kind of the early days of the industry, since you were you were there yeah. really mm-hmm. early on. Um, what what was it like when you got into the, when you started meeting people and you started discovering this little n- kind of nook of grape growers up here? What was the industry like in the early days?
1: It was again very supportive, and it was very social. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had social a lot of social events, <clears throat> dinners, uh, organizational meetings which became as much, uh, you know, industry associated as it is, was social. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it was just a bunch of friendships.
0: What about customers? Were, you, were people able to find customers to buy yeah, wine?
1: Yeah, well, I, I never had a, any trouble selling grapes, so.
0: What about people trying to sell wine? Uh,
1: I think it, it was hard in the, initially because there's no reputation. I think nowadays there's so many wineries. I'm not, I'm not sure how all of them do it. It's pretty difficult, I would think, to be mm-hmm. one of 700 and finding a, a niche market. So,
0: so what were some <clears throat> of the were there were there notable like moments or changes that you that you noticed as you were growing grapes was there were there times when the industry felt like it was taking a giant step forward or something notable was no, happening no i
1: i think it was it was sort of cyclical mm-hmm. almost depending on the weather years De- depending on you know w- what kind of weather you had would determine what kind of wine you could make mm-hmm. and then you got accolades for good years and not so much for years that were not good, and of course you had a lot of people who hadn't much winemaking experience. Mm -hmm. You didn't have a lot of uh, Davis graduates, you didn't have Chemeketa people graduating, you didn't have Oregon State people graduating, or Fresno State has a wine program Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So uh, as the skills of the winemakers improved and the technology improved, uh, the wine was better made you didn't get have some wines that you know one one wine out of with the name Oregon on it, which turned out to be bad, tainted the, the entire industry and you, so you had to be careful if you got rated poorly and and then reflected back on everybody else. Sure.
0: <clears throat> and the industry realized that very early on. Yeah, that I was think. I think
1: so. Yeah. Sure. Uh,
0: tell me about the. Uh, was there a, a, a moment at which you thought that the Oregon wine was going to be something? Because when you started, it really it really wasn't much of anything. It was a few people making yeah. making wine. Was there a point at which you thought? that it was, had arrived as an industry or had arrived as a success? Uh,
1: after the 83 and 85 vintages, so, where the key vintages.
0: So that's when and, it started to get kind of yeah, a, ten, a reputation?
1: Which is 15 years after I planted, or not 15, but close to that.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what happened in the aftermath of that? Like was it national recognition, international? Yeah, it
1: was, it was some national, some international. You know, let's 19, I think his 1975 South Block or whatever mm-hmm. was one of the in the competition with the Burgundies mm-hmm. was a defining moment, and then '83 and '85 I think were defining moments.
0: So we talked a little bit about sort of the, the future of the industry <laughs> in terms of weather, but what else do you see when you look at the future of Oregon wine? What do you what do you see on the horizon?
1: So, well, it's almost, I, I was noting recently that the brewery industry is sort of overdeveloped and Bridgeport's out going out of business and Widmer's closing down and I'm wondering how all these new wineries can make it. Uh, in other words, you gotta really expand the market, take care of this, although there's a lot of new money, huge money that doesn't, maybe they don't care if they make, Make a profit or not, you know Coppola is up here now and and uh and the peop- and Gideau and Coast has been here a long time uh, I think there's more of a there's more vanity wineries than there used to be uh, <clears throat> people who have a lot of money are interested in wines and. sure. Uh, or buying wineries or starting wineries, uh, which is different from when we started. Totally different. Sure. When it was a cottage industry. So
0: from specific perspective as a grape grower especially, as a farmer especially, are there challenges you see from that in that part of the industry? Are, is there something you're, that you worry about as you look at grape growing specifically in the future here in Oregon?
1: Well, with any monoculture you have to be concerned. Uh, that you, you know, if you if you take an area and completely cover it with grapevines, vines, mm-hmm. what, what are the diseases or pests that are going to give you a problem that you don't know about, mm-hmm. that can just pop up. And of course, we always fought the bird problem. In fact, I bought a little motorbike and ran up and down rows in my motorbike <laughs> to keep the birds out because I didn't use an mm-hmm. Uh Birds are always a pest, but what's interesting nowadays is uh, because harvests are a lot earlier than they, they used to be, the birds from Canada don't come down until the weather turns, so the harvest is basically over before. It used to be birds were a real problem. I don't think their last few years have been a problem at all. Interesting, interesting. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned monoculture and not and not yeah. and sort of a saturation. So what what is how does Oregon avoid that problem? Is it is it purely <clears throat> diversification of crops or?
1: some diversification, but for one thing, it doesn't, Every all the wine grapes are planted on hillsides, or almost all of them. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of forest area, and there's a lot of slopes that aren't conducive to growing wine grapes. So in, in many ways, monoculture would be more difficult to, to maintain in the, in the Dundee Hills, or in the Yola Hills, or I mean, simply because of the terrain. Mm-hmm. Because all of the sites on the, on the hills are not conducive to growing wine grapes, so uh, mm-hmm. there's some protection from that, I th- from monoculture, from that. Mm-hmm. Simply, you can't. You, you're planting within fir trees and hazelnut orchards, and so you, you have a diverse agriculture. Sure.
0: You've been around a lot of grapes and a lot of wine in your time. Do you yep. have any particular uh, favorites uh, that stand out in your in your memory? Either favorite, you've mentioned favorite vintages. Yeah, uh, yeah, is there a the favorite favorite or a favorite maker or a favorite uh, variety? Oh, uh,
1: I like Colleen Clemens. Mm-hmm. I like Bergstrom. I had a David Hill the other day that was really good. Oh, interesting. Which is the original Corey? Sure site. sure. Yeah. Uh, I've had some druans that are very good. In fact, uh one year my wife and I went to Burgundy and then had a tasting in the druon cellar in Beaune. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I've been to Europe uh I don't know a dozen times. Been all over the world.
0: It's a pretty good pretty good life, pretty good career. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I've been to most of the wine regions of the world.
0: Sure. Was there a particular notable
1: place? Uh, Burgundy is simply because it's Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Uh, Burgundy is one of my favorites. I like, I like Alsace too. Yeah. I had the, the last Riesling clone I had was from Alsace rather than Germany. Interesting. So I, I like the Alsace clone of Pinot Blanc. <clears throat> and Pinot Noir, I'm, and Pinot Gris, <laughs> anyway. Okay, you wanna?
0: Sure, yeah, just got, re- I, actually, you, you mentioned, you had mentioned Charles Corey earlier, and, and we always like to ask people who, who knew him because he was such an interesting character. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you talked about him not suffering fools. Yes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about him, and about, uh, about your experiences with him, and kind of his impact in the early days.
1: Uh, Well, as I said, before I even met him, because I'd heard about his reputation as being uh, fairly direct, Mm -hmm. is that I uh, read his master's thesis on uh, growing grapes at the northern limits of Mm ripening, and the first time I met him, I made that clear that I had already read his thesis, and so that was a good introduction, and then, my wife and his wife got along really well, and so we'd have dinners up there at the at what is now david Hill. Mm-hmm. and uh, I always found him charming, uh, direct, and a real straightforward personality. Mm-hmm. and he He started the first brewery in <laughs> in Oregon.
0: Yeah, he and mentioned, then
1: yeah. he moved to California, and then I don't know what ever happened to him. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, but he's a, he's a classic, you know, where, where Dick Rath is a renaissance man, Corey was uh, uh, just a totally different personality.
0: Well, that's all the questions that yeah, I really have yeah. for you. That's great. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Anything else you'd no, like to you mention
1: here? Uh, I guess one of the things that always was interesting to me was people's backgrounds didn't seem to line up at all with agriculture, He could have been a manager in some utility like I was, Dickie Russ an electronics guy, Corey was, I don't know what he, he was, he was, he was, he was selling something. Yeah, he was selling encyclopedias an I believe, or books, yeah, books yeah. door to door. You know, Let was selling books.
0: Oh, that's right. Let was one. That's right. That's yeah. Right.
1: So all these people came from totally different backgrounds, totally different, mostly from West Coast or California, but uh, nowadays they're coming from New York and East Coast and Minnesota. In fact, the Evanstads uh, came from Minneapolis. They, when they first came out here, they rented my house. Oh, really? Yeah. From, during Pinot Noir celebrations. <laughs> The first two years they came out, they rented my house, so I know Ken and Gracie.
0: That's awesome. Of course, they're big fans. They're big fans of. Yeah, I know. Obviously, they
1: (laughs) they donated a few bucks. Yeah. Anyway, we're
0: appreciative of that.
1: Yeah. Anyway, so.
0: Well, thank you. You're welcome. We really appreciate this, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook there. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast.